Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, Vision for You, Big Book Study. My name is Janice, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Thursday, June 27, 2013. Today we are reading from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we are in the chapter more about alcoholism, chapter 3. We are going to begin today with the first full paragraph on page 35 that begins, What Sort of Thinking? And the reference number for yesterday, the share code for yesterday, which was Wednesday, June 26th, is 4701. That's 4701. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At Vision for You Big Book Study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I'd now like to ask Irini to please read the 12 steps. Thank you, Janice. Good morning, my spiritual brothers and sisters. My name is Irini, and I'm a very grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. Thank you, God. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. 10. Continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. And 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. I thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Irini. 
I'd now like to ask Margaret H. to please read the 12th tradition. Good morning. Thank you, Janice. This is Margaret H., compulsive overeater in Illinois. The 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you. I pass. Thank you, Margaret. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speaker's should be muted. And today we resume our study of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we are in Chapter 3, More About Alcoholism. And today we are going to begin on page 35, the first full paragraph at the top of that page that begins with the sentence, What Sort of Thinking? And today I would like to ask Katie to please get us started. Good morning. I'm Katie, a recovered compulsive overeater in Virginia. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree, which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Of what is he thinking? Well, I this paragraph, you know, has the word thinking in it, and um, 
to me, uh, for me, I was not thinking. I wasn't thinking that the first bite was going to lead me to uh, binge and to my life continuing on the downward spiral that it was in. I didn't think that, um, I, I just didn't get it. And I didn't have um, the intervention of my higher power to stop me from taking the first bite. I, I just didn't think that um, it was going to happen this time. And if I, you know, had that pause and would think, no, I, I really should, um, you know, ask God to help me through this, and I could do that all on my own without the help of this program and this fellowship and um, all of what I do today, then, you know, I wouldn't be here. But the fact is, I, my thinking, my best thinking got me to, you know, close to 200 pounds at a, on a five foot three frame and wishing I had the nerve to run off the highway onto, you know, through the construction site so that I would just be away from this earth. But this, um, this disease is, you know, slow suicide. It's not... Um, it wasn't the first bite that made me uh, full and made me, you know, feel like vomiting or any of those things. I always thought that the first bite was not that big a deal. But, of course, it was everything because it required a decision to take back my will and to think that I could beat this game and that I could beat this disease on my own. You know, the difference today is that I uh, don't eat my binge foods. I don't eat um, <clears throat> just spontaneously. Uh, God has given me the willingness to have a plan for my life and a plan for each day. And one day at a time, I do not have the desire or the wish to be able to just eat casually, to just walk into a restaurant and uh, choose off the menu whatever I, you know, fancy or, you know, whatever I desire to have. And, you know, it's very, it is a mystery why we would do that over and over again. But it doesn't have to stay that way. I, you know, we have um, a spiritual toolkit that's laid out in this book that explains to us how to stop and to stay stopped. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Katie. Would anyone like to comment on this paragraph? This is Katie from Boston. Go ahead, Katie. Good morning, everyone. My name is Katie G. I am a recovered compulsive overeater from Boston, Massachusetts. And um, I don't know, I am really grateful to be on the line this morning and to read about my thinking, right? So the problem is we've been talking about um, our thinking, and for me, the thinking that dominated my compulsive overeating brain to get me to pick up that food was lies, right? Like I could never fully drink on the truth. I could never fully eat on the truth. The truth of me putting flour and sugar products into my body was this, right? So Katie, when you put that flour and sugar products into your body, it doesn't matter who's standing before you. 
you're going to push through them. You're going to do whatever you can to get more of that food. You're going to eat from a trash can. You're going to take laxatives. You're going to drink Ipecac. You're going to when end up passing out in your bed for the next two days with partially chewed food, and then you're going to want to take a gun to your head because you're going to be so miserable, right? Like at some point, even though I knew those consequences, it didn't matter. I was lying to myself. I had There had to be some sort of lie. And that is the thinking that can still dominate me today, right? Like and before I had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, I didn't know that I was plagued by lies and fears. The lie, this time it's going to be different. The lie, I will do this differently. The lie, I will take this food without impunity, which I see other people chewing without impunity, which means consequence. You know, and, and people like um, – I and people would do really crazy things to get me to stop. Like I remember I was in a relationship with someone and um, like we both knew that my food addiction, my binging was the problem. And I said, I'm going to go out and I'm just going to get a video. Don't let me take my wallet, right? And so five minutes later, I'm calling upstairs and I'm making up some big excuse. I need my wallet. I need my wallet. What if I get pulled over? I know I need a credit card, blah, blah, blah. You know, and... um. You know, the other thing, you know, with my thinking today is that, and I know I've said this before, but if my thinking, if the lies, if I allow that thinking to dominate me, you know, that led me to the food, if I allow that thinking, the resentment, the selfishness, the dishonesty, and the fear today, drinking and eating will be a step up from my thinking, right? So, like, I just continue to tell myself these lies based on fears about the, about the, reality of my life, what I think are the reality of my life, and finally, my, my head is so angry and, and hateful of the entire world that eating is a step up, you know, and there are plenty of people who, have, who tried to reason with me when I was eating, you know, and they'd say, Katie, you look like you're dying, you know, my brother said to me, Katie, you look like a cancer patient, whatever, I remember women used to tell me, you know, they, that I looked too thin, and I'd be like, oh, go excuse my language, you're jealous. You're jealous of the peach fuzz on my arms. You know, like that's totally amazing that I'm so thin that I can't even talk to you because all I can think of is a food. You know, and so again, for me, the crux of the problem is, the, is my thinking. And my thinking is, is as, a, as a compulsive overeater, I, am, I base my thinking, my best thinking is based on lies and fears. And unless I have a God to help me find the truth and where am I selfish, dishonest, self-centered, and afraid, and what is the truth of the situation, I will end up back in the food. And with that, I do pass. Thank you, Katie. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? This is Kim. Go ahead, Kim. Good morning, Janice. Good morning, my fellows. My name is Kim Jay, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate, the desperate experiment of that first drink? This is so essential for us to know. Because in this world of diet mentality, we're told that calories in equals calories out, mild exercise. You know, the problem isn't that we have a donut. The problem is that we're having six donuts. And if we can learn to have that one donut, if we can learn to have that one piece of our binge food, everything will be okay. And because of that, we have these desperate experiments. And what does desperate mean? I looked that up. It's this feeling, showing, or involving a hopeless, a hopeless sense 
that a situation is so bad as to be impossible to deal with. That's what my drinking felt like at the end of this. That's what my eating felt like at the end of this. Because it is the first drink. And even when I understood it was the first drink, my thinking would always bring me back. My thinking would tell me, no, 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 I figured out a way that you can enjoy that one piece of your binge food. You know what? If you exercise for an hour, those calories will be okay. You know what? If you throw up, those calories will be okay. You know what? If you use laxatives, you know what? If maybe you don't eat for two days, you can earn that binge food. Or you know what? You're 100 pounds overweight. Who the heck cares anyway? Those are, that's the thinking that's going to bring us back to that food. And why do we want that desperate experiment? What is that delusion in our head? I'm going to read from Vision for You, page 151, because this is what normal people experience. And this is what I want to experience. Because for most normal folks, drinking or eating means conviviality, companionship, and colorful imagination. It means release from care, boredom, and worry. It is joyous intimacy with friends and a feeling that life is good. That's what I'm chasing. That's that effect, the effect I want to get from my binge food. And we're not going to come into OA as long as we can get that effect. But the problem is we have this progressive illness. And as it progresses, we're going to get to that point that the best we could hope for is oblivion. The best we're going to be able to hope for is oblivion. So what happens when that thinking dominates us? It dominates us. And I like to use the analogy of looking through a straw. You know, when I'm able to abstain, I can see, I have peripheral vision. I can see the world around me. But the second I pick up that first bite, that first bite, it's like suddenly the world disappears and I'm looking through a straw and all I can see is that binge feed. I just want people to get away from me and I want people to leave me alone because I need to be alone with my binge food. That desperate experiment of the first strength always leads me to those four horsemen. And yet my thinking is going to tell me this time is different. So what I have to address is what is that thinking that is going to lead me to repeat time after time the desperate experiment of that first strength. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Well, this is Janice, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Well, we're in a chapter called More About Alcoholism, and we're in a place in the book where they said that they were going to try to have the reader identify how then shall we help our readers determine to their own satisfaction whether they're one of us? And they were hoping that this information might help not only the individual alcoholic who may recognize himself, but also the medical fraternity. Because there seemed to be a great mysterious thing going on here. Why is it that these people, maybe even after some physical help, maybe even after some physical help, getting away from the alcohol, regaining some of their physical health, why would they go back? Why would they go back and pick up again? Because no one could explain this part. No one could explain this part. And Dr. Silkworth had seen it happen with these recovered people. 
and Bill and Bob and these first 100 alcoholics had experienced it. So the purpose was, how can we help explain what happens to the alcoholic, what happens to his thinking? So they're going to try to give us some examples here so that we can see if we can relate. See if we can relate. So this paragraph tells me what sort of thinking dominates the alcoholic. What sort of thinking dominates him that he would go and pick up again and again? That desperate experience, experiment of picking up that first drink. What does it look like from the outside? It says friends who have reasoned with him after a spree, family members. They see it brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, and they would watch their loved ones, their friends, their family, walk back into the bar and pick up again. And I think to myself what it must have looked like for my family, for my loved ones, for my friends. There she is, back in the bakery, back in the cellophane bag, back in the bakery box, back in the carton. When she just swore up, down, and sideways that she was done, this is it, I'm through, I'm never going to do this again. You know, it must have been absolutely heartbreaking and heart-wrenching for people to see that from the outside. Because what does it look like? It looks like insanity. How could it be anything less? What are they thinking? They said to themselves, what are they thinking? Well, the big book is going to be very clear for us and give us some examples of what that looks like. Because it's the baffling feature of this disease as we know it. The utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the desire, the necessity, the wish. And with that, I'll pass. Would anyone else like to comment before we move on? Okay, we'll move on to the next paragraph. And Penny C., if you would read that for us. Yes, good morning. This is Penny C., a recovered compulsive reader in Massachusetts. Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable World War record. He's a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He is an intelligent man, normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us. Shall I end there? Shall I go on, Janet? Why don't you take that next paragraph, too, and we'll just go uh, together. We told him what we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. He made a beginning. His family was reassembled, and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. To his consternation, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in a serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family, for whom he had a deep affection. This is, this is uh, what a warning we're going to be hearing more about, you know, what happens to Jim. 
And, you know, the big book I've heard is, is it's full of promises, but the warnings are so, so numerous as well. But, you know, he had everything till he was 35 years old. Life couldn't have been better, it, it seemed. And, and he, even when he went to the asylum and, and um, he knew, he knew intellectually, he knew that if, if he kept on getting back, going back to the liquor, he would lose his family for whom he had a deep affection. We go back to just a couple of paragraphs before, and we see that that's the baffling feature of alcoholism, the utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. He knew, he knew it, it, it doesn't seem to be a doubt with him, that he would lose his family and of course, he didn't want to do that, but he he still the disease still wouldn't wouldn't um, wouldn't allow him to just give up the drinking just because he might lose his family whom he dearly loved. And then comes the sentence that that tells us the whole thing. He enli- he failed to enlarge his spiritual life, and I know for me that that's the that's the the whole, the whole thing with this disease of mine, that if I don't, on a daily basis, continue to enlarge my spiritual life, all the years of abstinence, all the, the many, many step studies, the, the working with sponsees, the working with my sponsor, all of that, that is going to be for nil if I don't continue to enlarge my spiritual life. You know, it really is, really is a one day at a time, and we really just do have a reprieve based on that whole spiritual recovery. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what other people have to say about this and to, again, hearing the end of Jim's story. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Penny. Would anyone like to comment on what was read? This is Paula. This is Kelly, me this year. Paula, and then who else did I hear? Sally. All right, Paula first, then. Thank you. Thank you. This would be Paula, Recovered Compulsive Reader, and also thank you for your service, Janice. This part here, I'm just going to grab a couple of lines here, and, you know, to see the guy seems like a real nice guy. Now, I guess here, too, we could fit really nice people, good people. Everybody likes them. He's an intelligent man, normal, so far as we can see. Well, see, that's it. As so far as we can see, it's not what you can see. It's what's inside that mind that's working, except for a nervous disposition. Then we go down to that line. We told him what we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. He made a beginning, and that's where he stayed. He didn't go any further, and we must go further. And as was just read, and I'm going to drop it right on down, about he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. All went well for a time. Your tomorrow is not going to be like today if you don't do the spiritual tools that have been laid at our feet, at our feet. Thus the action is you pick them up. You pick them up and you use them daily to build, to build relationships, to pick up the phone you call the newcomer to make contact with your sponsees, 
to make contact with your sponsor, to be here every morning. You enlarge your spirit. You can't handle life without it. Jim thought he could. Hey, I'm doing fine now. No. The mind, and as was said, it begins with the thinking and it ends with the thinking. So what is the thinking got to be? It's got to be totally changed and transformed into a new way of thinking, a connection with. And there it is, with a higher power daily, because only that, because otherwise this thinking dominates. It takes over. It is your higher power. Thank you for allowing me to share. And with that, I do pass on to Sally. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paula. And who is next? Sally in New Jersey. Go ahead. Thank you. Good morning, a vision for you. Poor Jim. Um, as Paula said, he made a beginning. So he got his he got his family back. He got his wife back. He got his job back. The business he had lost through drinking, and all went well for a time but he failed to enlarge on his spiritual life. And perhaps he had a sponsor who was working with him. And perhaps he did make a start on his steps. Perhaps he put his drink down. Sounds like he put his drink down initially. This all reminds me of page 98. And I I bring up the fact that perhaps he had a sponsor because so many have called me so um, concerned about not having a sponsor and have cried to me on the phone about not having a sponsor. And so I'm, I'm really impressed to read this. And the way I read it to them, page 98, it is not the matter of giving that is in question, but when and how to give that often makes the difference between failure and success. The minute we put our work on a service plane, the alcoholic commences to rely upon our assistance, a sponsor, rather than upon God. He clamors for this or that, a sponsor, claiming he cannot master alcohol until his material needs, a sponsor, are cared for. Nonsense. Some of us have taken very hard knocks to learn this truth. Like Jim, job or no job, wife or no wife, we simply do not stop drinking so long as we place dependence upon other people, i.e. a sponsor, ahead of dependence on God. Burn like cattle branded by God the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone of even having or not having a sponsor. The only condition is that he trust in God and clean house. And I say this because I remember when my sponsor in the beginning weeks of my recovery this past year, last June, would go on vacation and I would be in such a sense of, oh my goodness, am I going to make it through this? And over and over my sponsor would remind me, put your hand in God, Sally. You're going to be fine. You have God. That isn't to say we don't need a sponsor. I certainly needed my sponsor to bring me to the shores of recovered. But he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And that's what the steps are all about. Steps one, two, and three is having that right relationship with our higher power. There is a God, and I'm not it. And that's what this guy had to find out. 
Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Sally. Would anyone else like to comment on these on what was read on these two paragraphs? Sherry from Georgia. Go ahead, Sherry. Thank you. I'm Sherry and I am a compulsive overeater. Um when um with the sentence that says he failed to enlarge his spiritual life and I heard someone say to pick up the spiritual tools laid at our feet. You know, I had I had such a humbling feeling that my God, someone else has put all this together for me and for others. They've done the work. <laughs> They've done the work and put it at my feet. Can I at least pick the tools up and and use them and recover? Uh, that's all I have to say. That was that meant a lot to me, and uh, I'll pass. Thank you, Sherry. Would anyone else like to comment? Monica. Go ahead, Monica. Good morning, everyone. My name is Monica. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. And yes, here's Jim. He's made a beginning, but you know things don't go well because. He failed to enlarge his meta- his spiritual experience, his spiritual life. Now, so it sounds like, you know, he did steps one, two, and three, and that's as far as he went. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that doesn't work. We have to work through the process. We have to enlarge our spiritual life. And this whole process is, like other people are saying, it's not between me and a sponsor. It's between me and God. It's all about you and God finding this higher power, working with God, letting God do for you what you can't do for yourself, and realizing that you are totally powerless, totally powerless against this obsession of the mind, and this is where God has to come in, because we can't do it. But God expects you to do the other things that you can do. And then I also like... It says, to his consternation, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. And I think this is an important little information, uh, instructions here that I'm being given as a sponsor. You know, they worked with this guy. He fell. He slipped. He relapsed half a dozen times, and they reviewed with him every time what was going on. What's going on, you know? Are you are you working your steps? Are you starting and ending your day with prayer? Are you putting the binge foods down? Are you working on your steps? You know, is there a little halt going on in there? You know, I think that's important that we can, that we do work with people, you know, and I thank God that my uh, sponsor worked with me. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Monica. And who else would like to share? This is Kim. This is Leah. Kim and then Leah. Thanks, Janice. He is an intelligent man, normal, so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. You know, that sounds to me like restless, irritable, and discontent. Because that's the true nature of alcoholism. That, I, that feeling, I'm just not feeling right in my own skin. Just not feeling like, I, you know, everyone else got the, the manual for life and I was left out. Feeling that the world dominated me. Feeling that 
you know, people were out to get me. That's my nervous disposition. I was intelligent. I had a lot of life skills to a certain extent, but I always had this underlying feeling that I just wasn't okay. And what was I going to do with that? I was going to blot it out with the food. And once the food stopped working, what was I going to do? I don't know. So that nervous disposition is the true nature of alcoholism. That's why we're looking outside of ourselves for something to make us comfortable. We're looking for that ease and comfort because comfort, we have that disposition. So he made a beginning. Mind you, when I came in, people told me what their binge foods were, and I started to abstain from them. I was given a food plan. I said, woo, happy days are here. Feel better, work better, everything's wonderful. But I was a boy whistling in the dark. I was thinking if I kept myself distracted enough, then maybe I won't pick up. Maybe I'll keep the beast at bay. If I go to enough meetings, if I make enough phone calls, and meetings and phone calls are wonderful, but they're tools. And what's a tool? A tool is something that is utilized to build something. So what I was doing was the beginning. I wasn't truly building the structure I needed. So when it says he failed to enlarge his spiritual life, I used to find that frustrating. I went through 12 years of religious school. I knew how to pray. I'm praying morning, noon, and night. I'm saying, God, keep me away from the food. I'm saying, you know, God, make me a size 14. I don't want to shop in Lane Bryant anymore. But enlarging our spiritual life means it's a step. But I can sit there with a, with a generator and keep plugging it into the wall, but if the electricity isn't hooked up, I can't access that power. And that's what I had to understand. I, I could pray and I could meditate, but if I am blocked from God, because I put resentment and fear and anger and character defects and shame and guilt and remorse between me and God, I can't access that power. So enlarging our spiritual life isn't just talking about saying certain prayers. It's doing the footwork, doing the steps so that I can clear away those blockages and then I can do almost the same exact prayers, but now I have access. Now I can plug that generator into the wall and I can have the juice. I can have the juice. But making that beginning of putting the food down is essential. But if we don't get to the work of the steps, that nervous disposition is going to come so unbearable. And since we can't access the juice through the generator of God, we're going to try to access that juice through the food, which is the only solution we've ever known. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Go ahead, Leah. Thanks so much. Good morning, everybody. My name is Leah. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. We told him what we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. Uh, so, you know, the members of AA were doing a good job uh, of speaking and telling him about, telling Jim about steps one and two. He made a beginning. His family was reassembled, and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. Again, this alludes to, uh, you know, all action is born in thought here. Perhaps there's some restlessness, irritability, and discontentment that he is working for a business that he used to own. Uh, all went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. You know, he Jim is making a go for it um, on self-sufficiency. You know, escape from the bottle, escape from alcoholism through self-sufficiency. He's not enlarging his spiritual life. We, you and I know that as uh, proceeding through the steps. 
you know, perhaps Jim took uh, steps one, two, and three, but the only way we can enlarge our spiritual life is by doing steps four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven. And Jim didn't do any of those things. It says, to his consternation, to his confusion, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in serious condition. I mean, you know, (laughs) there is a depth to taking step one. Jim can't at the same time accept that he is without defense against the first drink and also believe that self-knowledge and an understanding of the disease is going to provide him with sufficient defense against the first drink. You know, you you can't say, you know, uh, you know, I accept I'm without defense against the first drink and at the same time believe that self-knowledge is going to be enough. It doesn't work that way. If you accept your powerlessness, then you accept that you can't keep yourself sober. You know, and if he believes he can keep himself sober, then he is an accepting powerlessness. It is it's a level of of depth here that's that's missing. You know, because unless Jim can humble himself by taking step 1, he does not need the rest of the program. Because if Jim feels that he has power over this disease, then he doesn't need to believe in a power greater than himself to restore him to sanity. So it's all happening on a very intellectual level here. That there's there's really no surrender going on. It's just an intel, uh, uh, exercise in um, intellectualism and self knowledge. Oh, I'm I'm an alcoholic. Oh, okay. You know, now I need to keep myself from drinking. Well, it's it's not going to work that way. Because if you think you have power over the disease and you don't need to believe in a power greater than yourself to restore you to sanity, and if you don't believe that you need to turn your will and life over to that power, then you don't feel the urgency to proceed through the rest of the steps. And that's exactly what happens. And he gets the results of that. And what are the results of that kind of thinking? What's the results of self-knowledge? Well, it says right here, he found himself drunk a half a dozen times in rapid succession. Because self-knowledge and intellectualism isn't going to work. It's got to be death of ego. And that has not happened yet for our friend Jim. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Leah. Would anyone else like to comment before we move on? Rose. Go ahead, Rose. Thank you, Janice. This is Rose, Recovered Compulsive Overeater in New York. And... um, These two paragraphs are um, really written out of my first three months in the program. Um, I was three months abstinent, and um, and it was stark raving abstinence, and um, and I hadn't had a um, I hadn't come I had come to believe in a higher power sufficiently to to start start something. But there was no expansion of any um, spiritual life. I was absolutely running on self-sufficiency. And um, the thing that took place, I went to ask a, another person in the program, what should I do? And she said, you got to have a fourth step. She said, you're nuts. And um, what I said to her, I can't repeat here on the line now, 
uh, my response to her was violent. It was it was just a violent response that she should dare say that I needed to have a um, inventory and I had to examine uh, that that I had defects. Period. That I had a defect. And um, and I then uh, picked up. I worked in a candy store, a job I wouldn't leave, and I did pick up. And and I had a very close call with death because after a binge of 30 days or longer, I decided I didn't, I could, I was out of my mind. And so 90 sleeping pills, uh, talking to the doctor, asking me why did I try to kill myself, looking at him trying to figure out how can I say I couldn't stop eating chocolate. And when I get out of the hospital, when they finally did release me, I then say to myself, how, how did I get here? And it, it would have been a nice uh, way to tie up this little story by saying, oh, the light came through. I got it. I got it. I saw That I saw I had to have the steps. I didn't get it. I didn't get it until last year when finally I um, saw that I was, I had no control over compulsive overeating and that I hadn't sufficiently cleaned house and that I hadn't had a connection with God that was going to sustain me. And with that, as I've said before, the doors opened up and in flooded the rest of these steps to save a life that I thought wasn't going to actually make it. Thank you, Janice. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Rose. Well, we're going to move on to the next paragraph. And Esther, would you read that for us? How many paragraphs did you want me to read, Janice? Um, Just the first one on page 36. Fine. Good morning. My name is Esther. I'm a compulsive overeater in Canada. Yet he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I, had, that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car. On the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. I just thought I would get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place which was familiar, for I had been going to it for years. I I had eaten there many times during the months I was sober. I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. So um, Jim's telling his story because uh, in in examining his story, we're going to find out what what the sort of thinking is that dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time uh, the experiment of the first drink. So in telling us his story in in detail, we can look at uh, some of the patterns of thinking and, uh, you know, which leads to that first compulsive bite or the first drink for him. And what what is interesting is that if we would be reading the story about any other person, there's nothing that uh, exciting or interesting or dramatic about it. But we who know already, you know, the story and understand... um, how important our thinking is in the program of recovery, could see how he's building up to uh, to, uh, 
to needing to the the ease and comfort of that first drink, um, we we see that he's irritated that he had once owned this place and now he's got to be a salesman. He has a few words with the boss. Things are going on um, in his head, and he either does not know how to take care of them, or he hasn't he hasn't sufficiently um, uh, become willing to you know continue with the steps and and learn about his thinking and how it blocks him from a higher power. He, as we've mentioned before in the previous paragraph that we read, he, he's made a good beginning and he's put put down the the alcohol, but he has not learned how to, uh, uh, you know, how his thinking is, is 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 the source of all his problems and how to take care of that thinking. Um, and we're going to see in the in the upcoming paragraph again how it's not going to be some dramatic incident that's going to um, send him to to the whiskey. It's just going to be. You know, some slow and, and subtle uh, uh, move in that direction, and this reminds me of the, the expression that I often hear in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous, where we've got a, be- uh, a head full of OA and a belly full of food. I mean, before we come into the program of recovery, it, there's it's it's obvious why we eat. We we don't know anything about our disease, and food's the only way that we know how to manage through life. But once we come into the rooms, and we've been taught everything, maybe we've we like Jim. We've got you know someone who's sponsoring us and telling us, and we put down the food and 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 life's good. But we sort of stop there. We don't continue on with our spiritual program and do the rest of the steps till the end. Um, so we 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 know a lot, and we we meet the people, and we and we uh, you know we've got a fellowship, and we we certainly know plenty, but we haven't done the actual work. So we're baffled as to why we pick up that first bite because again, it's never. A, it's not it's not usually something dramatic that happens or some great catastrophe. It's there we are and the foods in our mouth and we think to ourselves what happened? You know, we it's it's hard for us to it's hard it's we don't know what what is the thinking? What what's the process that's going on in my mind that leads me to that first bite after I've been spending all these years in Overeaters Anonymous and hearing about what my problem is. I might have been sitting on a vision for you for 6 months and already know, you know, uh, um you know, hearing plenty of, uh, of 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 shares from recovered people about the nature of my disease, and yet there I am. I know so much, and and suddenly, you know, I've got something in my mouth that shouldn't be there. And 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 this is what this these paragraphs are going to teach us. What is it about that thinking that uh, brings us to that first compulsive bite? And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Esther. Well, this is Janice, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. I just, I, this paragraph is so interesting to me because it's such a setup. It is such a setup. And if you're a compulsive overeater of my type, you can probably plug yourself into Jim's story and your own setup. You know, your own setup. You know, he, here's this man. Who is this man? He has admitted and agreed that he's a real alcoholic. And yep, it's pretty serious. It's pretty serious. He's admitted that he loves his family and that if he keeps on the way he's keeping on, he'll lose him. He's already lost his business and now he's working there as a salesman. You know, his whole life, all aspects, all areas of his life have been affected. And he knows it. He's got this self-knowledge under his belt. He knows it. But he cannot stop and stay stopped. And I was like that. 
I could not stop and stay stopped. Despite the self-knowledge, despite the experiences, despite all of that, you know, yes, he got drunk again. And I don't know about you, but there's nothing worse than being in that place. Here I am again. That realization. You know, but he was just like me. It was a setup because he was able to justify and minimize and rationalize everything that he was doing. Everything that he was doing. I know I'm hungry. I'll stop at this place. I know I've gotten some prospects, some sales prospects there before. I know there's drinking there, but I'm okay now. I've been there since I've been sober, and I was able to handle it. But there was a perfect storm going on for Jim and a building of that restless, irritable, and discontentment that I had no power against. And it was building in him just like it would build in me. Until finally, finally, the disease would grab hold once again. And I was powerless against that. Even though I wanted to believe I was not, that didn't change anything. And with that, I'll pass. Would anyone like to comment on this paragraph? Good morning. This is Bella. Can I share? Go ahead, Bella. Good morning. I am Bella. This I compose Peter. I am so happy. Thank God that I am able now to to read about B, to read this story and to say, wow, this is a mirror for me. This is the way I was. Yes, before the program, I thought that, you know, I had my own thinking and the way I think, the way I act. And I thought that Yes, everything in my life is because of me, is regarding what I am doing and what I am not doing. And the same thing about my weight. Yes, I am heavy because I don't know how to eat and because I don't have the power and because I don't have the willpower and because I cannot trust myself. And this is the way I thought and this is the way I act and this is the way people accepted me. Yes, that, you know, I am completely a loser. And it wasn't only in the area of the food and the eating. I am a completely a loser in all other aspects in life. And this is the way I am thinking. And when I came to the program and I realized that, no, it's nothing to do with me. It's like, you know, I have a disease, and I have a disease because this is how God created me. And, you know, when I started to realize that, yes, I do have a higher power, and I have to give my life to the control of the higher power, this is when I was able to change my thinking, and automatically my way of acting and my way of behavior was different and then when I was able to change my way of acting and yes when I I hear again and again that after he was sober for so long he went again to the restaurant and again he ate and again he didn't want to drink from the beginning the alcohol but he couldn't Yes, it sounds very familiar. Again and again, I 
promise to myself, oh Bella, this time you will be able to see a cake and not to eat it. No, I couldn't. I couldn't because, you know, I am a human being and I cannot do it by myself. I have to, to give over my life to God and God is my higher power and only by changing my way of thinking I can change my way of acting. And it's a wonderful thing to, to realize that Yes, I do have control only in my thinking. I, I, I can change my way of thinking. I can change. I am so happy and I am so thankful to God that God helped me to be able to be aware that, yes, my thinking is in my control and I want to change my thinking. I am powerless. I am powerless over food, I am powerless over people, I am powerless over my future, I want to be connected to God. Yes, God is my higher power, and my higher power has to direct me to the right way of acting, and by this I will pass. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bella. We have time for one more quick share. Who, uh, who Ma- else wanted to? This is Paula. May I share? Monica. Huh? Uh, go ahead, Paula. Thank you. I just wanted to share quickly on when you look at that, and if you want to count, which I did, by the way, because somebody told me there's 19 eyes there. But can I tell you, you can't count the 19 eyes, but there's actually one, and that was Jim himself. And as he went through the day, you read the paragraph, you've read it, you heard it. And here we see the perfect on XXVII, restless, irritable, and discontent. Read through it and you see it. Restless, why? I felt irritated. Oh, he even uses the word that I had been a salesman for a concern I once owned. Oh, again, I had a few words with the boss. I got a feeling they weren't pleasant. But nothing serious, oh really, we don't even know in our disease what is serious and what isn't serious, what we should walk away from. And here we see the perfect description of a life that has not been spiritually enlarged, that's based on I. His master will then again come and conquer because that is alcohol. And there, the ending, but first it said, I love this way it ended and I'll end here. Still, no thought of drinking and decided to have another glass of milk. And there, the the beginning or the ending. With that, I do end. Thank you again. Thank you, Paula. And our time is up for today. So thank you to everyone who has shared. Thank you to Radini and Margaret H., to Katie, Penny C., Esther, and Kathy K. for being on the lineup this morning, and for everyone who shared. We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. And Kathy Kay, could you read that for us? Sure, Janice. Thank you. Um, Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. 
But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you charge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.